This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, here's our hot question today. Which artist produced the best Christmas song ever? Best Christmas song of all time. Here are your options. Would you say Mariah Carey? Yeah. Number one on the hit parade. Uh, Mariah Carey calls herself the Queen of Christmas. Hey, it's not bragging if you can do it. Would you say Wham! Last Christmas? Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. The very next day. Okay, nice song. You know. Okay, for the old school people out there, would you say John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Happy Christmas? Merry Christmas! Oh my God, Yoko, no, no. Yeah, she can, Yoko bugs me a little bit, but... Okay, so those are your three choices, or you can do a write-in vote, okay? So if you don't agree with any of those, you can reply and tell us. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. I'm going to do a write-in for Der Bingle and do White Christmas, because Bing Crosby and Christmas goes together like uh, Heckle and Jekyll or Peanut Butter and Jam. Phone me on the buzz line, too. And tell me what you think there. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. The most rushed, least thorough, and most unfair impeachment inquiry in modern history. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. That's the voice of the top Republican in the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell. He is denouncing the impeachment yesterday of U.S. President Donald Trump in the House of Representatives, the Democrats using their majority there to impeach the president. This will now go on to the Senate for a trial, but there's some speculation about exactly when that would happen. Donald Trump earns the ignominious distinction of being just the third American president to be impeached, joining Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. Now, if you're thinking, if you're thinking, wait a minute, what about Nixon? Well, he resigned before they could get him, but he was going down too. Have a listen to this. This is uh, McConnell talking about the impeachment of the president. The framers built the Senate to provide stability, to take the long view of our republic, to safeguard institutions from the momentary hysteria that sometimes consumes our politics, to keep partisan passions from literally boiling over. Okay, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. Let's assemble our panel now to talk about this. Karen Cataline joins us again, the host of Spouting Off Talk Show in Colorado. She supports the president. Karen, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure. Also on the line, Brian Kennedy. He's the president of the Can-Am Consulting Group in San Diego, California. Brian is a former journalist with the Canadian Press and Broadcast News. He's a former White House correspondent. Brian, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure, Mike. Appreciate it, guys. Karen, let me go to you first. Your reaction to the impeachment of the president. Well, it was not a big surprise. I I just want to say I'm so glad. Number one, thank you for inviting me with Brian. 
I'm going to try and keep my cool this time because I think we get more light instead of heat when I do that. Okay, uh, it's an, a, a passionate issue, and of course I get excited. It's talk radio. But you, you had a spectacular open because I was at the gym walking on the treadmill, <laughs> walking on the elliptical when I saw Mitch McConnell. And I, on my show and others, have been pretty critical of Mitch McConnell for not being tougher and stronger. I'll tell you what, I was so proud of the presentation that he gave. He not only took the, the house to school on civics and the Constitution, he took America to school uh, in, a, in a good way and explaining how preposterous and unfair this process has been. And I would ask, just to prime the pump a little when you go to Brian, if, if they had the goods, why did they have to rig the process? Why did they ignore exculpatory evidence? Why did they have to break so many laws? They don't got nothing, because okay. if they did, they wouldn't have to do that. Okay, Karen says that the impeachment, she agrees with McConnell, Brian, that it's unfair, it's just hysteria. Your thoughts on the impeachment of the president? Well, I'm glad to see that President Putin uh, weighed in on this saying the same things. Uh, so I'm glad to see that, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and Putin now are on the same, uh, you know, the same wavelength. Uh, anyway, let's be clear about this. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true, though. Uh, no, it me, isn't. But let me, I'll let you talk. Hang on, hang on, Karen. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. Let him go. Let him talk. I read President Putin's statement like two minutes ago, uh, you know, agreeing that Trump shouldn't have been impeached and using the uh, talking points of the president and now Mitch McConnell. But getting back to the, the point here, uh, there was a trial, basically not a trial, but hearings in the House where yeah. Republicans and Democrats heard the evidence. They had live witnesses, witnesses that were, were allowed to attend or attended on their own, despite the president trying to block them. And there were his own appointments, ambassadors of Ukraine, and the European Union and others, and they testified the facts of the facts. The Republicans are not disputing the facts. The president of the United States tried to use Ukraine and its president to gain dirt on Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, and interfere with a 2020 election, oh. and it's probably still going on, and that's the facts. Isn't it, isn't it sad? Is, isn't it sad? Not Isn't it sad, though, Brian, that this is basically falling down almost 100% along strictly partisan lines? There were a couple of Democrats who didn't vote, who voted not to impeach the president. But otherwise, this is just a straight up and down partisan by party vote. And if, if it was so bad, don't you think a few Republicans would have switched over to, to uh, vote to impeach Trump? Well, you know, you would think so. You know, that may happen in the Senate. Uh, you know, there could be a, you know, one or two or three senators that may not agree with Mitch McConnell will have to wait and see uh, when that trial begins. But you're right. Yeah. The, the country is split right down the middle. Uh, the one thing there, it's interesting while they're split on impeach or not impeach, the one thing the majority of Americans, and we're talking 70% of Americans, they want a trial and a fair trial in the Senate. In other words, okay. they want to hear from witnesses. And this is something that Mitch McConnell has made quite clear to the president, who I think also wants to have a show trial. But Mitch McConnell has made it quite clear that's not going to happen because if we start doing this, it could go off the rails. Okay, Karen Cataline, what should happen in the Senate now? 
Well, I'd like to respond, if I could, to what Brian said. Sure. How does he explain, Brian, how do you explain that they were talking impeachment six or seven times before this egregious phone call that they have filled with nothing but innuendo actually happened? And there were no fact witnesses in that hearing, in either hearing, and the whole thing was started by a whistleblower that they refused to have testify. So this is a sham. This is a, a scam. And, he, and I feel sorry for you having to defend such a shabby process. If they had the goods, as I said, they would have played by decent rules and allowed uh, any kind of opposition. And you're Good. wrong. The president had every right to yeah. fight. It's being demanded to, to uh, supply uh, evidence in an unfair and unethical and illegal process. Okay, Brian. I've done my homework this time, Brian, and I know you are leaving out a lot of material facts. No, I'm not. First of all, I'm not. First of all, the Democrats followed the process used by Republicans when they went to impeach Bill Clinton. They used the exact same process. And if you go back and you listen to the statements of Lindsey Graham way back then and Senator Mitch McConnell way back then, they were demanding witnesses come before them and testify. And if President Trump was so innocent, absolutely so innocent, why wouldn't he not allow anybody from his staff or elsewhere from the Justice Department to go in front of those, at those committees in the House and defend them? And why won't he allow them to that. Go You want me to answer that? Karen, no, go I ahead. You. Are you suggesting, as many Democrats in the House, that you have to, you are guilty until proven innocent? Nothing of no. the way that they handled this hearing, no, I, either what one, I am saying, went what by I am the, saying hold is, on, the tradition of jurisprudence yeah. that is fair and reasonable. Every president, as Mitch McConnell, did you listen to what he said? I know he isn't the greatest speaker, but you know what? It's the greatest speech I've ever seen Mitch McConnell give well, because he finally talked about the rule of law and, and uh and the shoddy, ridiculous way that this has all okay. been gone down Brian. when they were talking impeachment of this president yeah. before he was even inaugurated. Okay. Ahead, the Brian. whole thing is so preposterous. Well, okay, hang I don't on, know Karen. how you can fall for it. Hang on, Karen. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, well, let me just say, Mike. You know, she keeps on saying about they wanted to impeach him before. Where it started, the impeachment started to come up was during the Mueller report. And then the findings no, of the Mueller before report. That, Wait a minute. Let me, can I finish? Okay, let's get the facts here. Uh, First of all, that's when impeachment started. But I'll just make this quite clear and really simple so you understand, Karen. You know what? The American people obviously wanted to impeach the president because they voted in the Democrats in 2018 to take over the House, which in turn turned around and impeached the president. So if the Americans decided he had to go, that's why they put the Democrats. Well, that's working backwards from a stated conclusion, and that's the kind of shoddy logic that Democrats have been using for everything. Hey, Brian, let me ask you this. I Wait, let me finish. Because I decided and divined what Donald Trump meant, I get to make a case based purely on innuendo, no witnesses who've said, who've seen or heard anything, and the one witness that they had it was extremely clear, Sonderman, that Trump said no 
quid pro quo. Meanwhile, okay. Trump is doing his job to try to investigate actual corruption, actual quid pro quo with Joe Biden, but the Democrats don't want to talk about that. A great day for the Constitution of the United States. A sad one for America that the president's reckless activities necessitated us uh, our having to introduce articles of impeachment. Okay, that's Nancy Pelosi, of course, the uh, speaker of the Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives on the day yesterday when Donald Trump was impeached by the House. Let's continue now with my guest, Karen Cataline, Brian Kennedy. Brian, let me ask you real quick on the uh, the impeachment article on obstruction of Congress. You already were making the point earlier. But why didn't Trump cooperate with the with the House blocked witnesses? He blocked the release of documents. Couldn't the Democrat the Democrats could have just. Oh, oh, hang on a sec, guys. We got some breaking news here right now. And let's go to it. This is Gord McDonald. Andrew Barry will spend at least 22 years in prison for murdering his two young daughters two years ago in his Oak Bay apartment uh, on Christmas Day. A B.C. Supreme Court judge in Victoria this morning has sentenced Barry to life in prison with no parole eligibility for at least 22 years. Back in September, the Oak Bay man was convicted of second-degree murder in the stabbing deaths of four-year-old Aubrey and six-year-old Chloe, and all to be decided today was not uh, the life in prison sentence that's automatic with a second degree murder conviction but rather how long he would be in prison before being eligible for parole the range for second degree murder is 10 to 25 years the judge deciding today 22 years andrew berry will be in prison for at least 22 years before he can apply for parole after murdering his two daughters two years ago on christmas day in oak bay i'm gord mcdonald Thank you for that, Gordon. Absolutely heartbreaking case there that we continue to follow for you today. Brian, as we go back to our panel on the impeachment of the president, Brian, why couldn't the Democrats have just gone to court to fight the president to try and get the witnesses and the documents? Instead, they go straight to impeachment. Well, they did go to court. They, they, didn't, they didn't go all the way to court. I mean, they could have continued to fight him all the way in court. Well, yeah, but the, the problem was they went to the first court. And a decision on the witnesses wasn't going to come down until mid, mid-December or possibly early January. So they did go to court. And they felt, okay, if we keep going to court, they're going to appeal it. And they're going to appeal it to the Supreme Court. There's not going to be any time. So they had that, that option. They did go to court. And one of the courts did decide that Don McGahn, a former White House counsel, uh, was to testify. But the White House appealed that. And now okay. that's not going to happen until, you know, next spring. And it will go to the Supreme Court ultimately. So going to court wasn't going to be the answer. Uh, okay. If they thought it would be and get it done quickly, they probably would have continued ah, that path. Let's, let's may, take some... I, may I respond? Real quickly, Karen, go ahead. Well, well, he said there isn't going to be any time, and that's really the key people need to listen to. The key is there won't be enough time to smear Donald Trump's reputation in time for the 2020 election, which is less than a year away, so that... We can't give the American people the right to vote. Al Green said it his very own self. If we don't impeach the president, he's going to get reelected. 
Okay. And one other thing, if I have time, I looked it up during the commercial. I see an article from July, uh, June 28th. 80 Democrats have called for impeachment from April and May before this call, this horrible phone call, which is stupid, was even made. And they okay. would like us to believe that that this is what they're impeaching him on. This let's, nonsense. Let's it's, try it's and get it. Let's try and get a couple of, and stupid. Let's try and get a couple of phone calls in real quick. Paul in Richmond. Hi. Uh, yeah, this this it, it's absolutely a travesty. It's really they they were talking about uh, impeaching Trump long before he his inauguration. This is simply they would have impeached him for jaywalking. It's simply <laughs> to drag it out to the election because they're they they just have this vitriolic hatred for Trump. And I mean, you don't have to like the guy, but you cannot impeach him either for what they claim he's right. done. Well, and the did, only they witness they have, yeah. the only witness they have, they don't even bring him forth. Like okay. it's beyond Brian, pathetic. You... You are... Brian, what do you say to him? Well, well I, I agree with John Bolton, the former national security advisor, who is an eyewitness, by the way. He called it a drug deal. He likened this whole thing with Ukraine a drug deal, and to me, it was a bribery scheme or an extortion scheme. And I don't think this kind of behavior should be allowed. And let me finish. And you go back to April and June. That's because of the Mueller report. Because Mueller made it quite clear he could not charge Trump under Department of Justice rules. Otherwise, Trump would have been facing obstruction of justice charges, like nine or ten of them. So that's okay. why they were looking at impeachment back then. Okay, we've got less than a minute left. Karen, go ahead. You gotta go All quick. I can say is I invite everyone who's listening to ask questions don't believe me. Watch and look at the evidence. They could not bring one fact witness, and now they expect the Senate to do their work for them. Watch what Mitch McConnell said, and follow me on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and go to my website, because I write a lot of stuff about this, okay. KarenCataline.com. Karen, spelled the normal way, Cataline, spelled K-A-T-A-L-I-N-E. Com. All right, Karen. Thanks very much for coming on. Brian, thank My you pleasure. to you as usual. Best of the holiday season to both of you. I appreciate it. Karen Cataline, Brian Kennedy. Let's bring you the latest now on the Andrew Berry case. This is the man who stabbed to death his own two young daughters in his suburban Victoria apartment on Christmas Day uh, two years ago. The sentence is in. A B.C. Supreme Court judge has just sentenced Andrew Barry, let's check in with Sarah McDonald now, global news reporter on the story. Hi, Sarah. Hey there, good morning. Uh, yeah, we're just getting uh, this sentencing into our newsroom right now. So we now know that Andrew Barry will not be eligible for parole for at least 22 years at this point. So he's in his mid-40s now. He will be a senior citizen before he can even apply for parole at this point. That's at the upper end of the spectrum that the judge could have sentenced him to. The Crown had asked for him to not be eligible for parole for between 21 to 24 years. Uh, so she sentenced uh, him to 22 years. She did take some leniency on him where she could because his sentences could have been uh, served consecutively rather than concurrently. So his uh, two counts of second-degree murder came with two automatic life sentences. Uh, those could have been served one after the other consecutively, which is something that we don't typically see in Canada. Um, he will be serving those concurrently, so at the same time, uh, one 
at the same time as both both of them will be served at the same time together. So uh, a bit of leniency there showed by the judge, but we have just uh, gotten a statement from uh, Sarah Cotton, who is mm-hmm. Andrew Berry's former partner and, of course, the mother of those two girls, Aubrey and Chloe, who were just four and six years old were they, when they were stabbed to death um, on Christmas Day of 2017. And she tells us she is relieved that this part of the judicial process is over, uh, but she says there is no length of sentence that is appropriate for the depth of the crimes that her former partner has committed. Uh, having said this, I support the sentencing decision made by Madam Justice Gropper this morning. Chloe and Aubrey lost their lives in the most brutal way at the hands of their father. I have lost the life that I loved and knew, and I do not believe that Andrew, who has shown no remorse and a complete disregard for the lives of our daughters, should ever get a second chance. So obviously some strong words there from Sarah Cotton. We uh, listened to her testify over the course of the trial, and it was a tough testimony to listen to. She was on the stand for several days, uh, getting grilled in, in cross-examination, wow. essentially. So the judge also saying in sentencing that she did not buy the defense's argument uh, that was laid out at trial, that Andrew Barry had been being pursued by loan sharks, um, that right. defense alleged came in and killed his daughters, Chloe and Aubrey. Uh, they also... Um, Sarah Cotton, it was a tough couple of days for her on, on the, on the stand. Defense yeah. was sort of, um, accusing her of being uh, manipulative, Machiavellian, oh. uh, almost. So it was, so obviously, I mean, a, a, a horrific two years, uh, for her to live through. Um, and now I guess some closure, at least for the family. But as she says in her statement, no sentence uh, will ever be enough. And, and right. of course, as we know, Chloe and Aubrey will, will never be back. So, um, yeah, some closure hopefully for the family at this point. So we now know Andrew Barry will be behind bars for at least 22 years. And that is the earliest that he can even apply for right. release at this point. Right. Apply is not automatic. He could apply, but he could, you know, a judge could still keep him behind bars. Exactly. So that's right. the earliest that he can even, you know, make any sort of case right. to be released on parole. It certainly does not mean that he will be released on parole in 22 years. So, okay. um, yeah, I mean, and he does, yeah, two automatic life sentences is what he is serving. But of course, as we know in Canada, a life sentence typically is not a life sentence. So, um, so yeah, it remains to be seen how long he will spend behind bars, but he will be there for at least 22 years. So right. at least until 2042 at this point. Speaking to Global News reporter here, uh, Sarah McDonald on the sentencing just in the last few moments of Andrew Barry on the deaths of his two young daughters in his Oak Bay apartment near Victoria two years ago. Uh, just looking at some notes Sarah sent to us by Brad McLeod, another Global News reporter who's been in the, who's in the courtroom when the sentences came down. He said the courtroom was full. There was an overflow room made available because the courtroom itself was packed. Andrew Barry himself, his head was held down the whole time as the sentences were read the judge called the crime vicious and because the girls were killed in separate rooms the judge pointing out that that may have that showed some forethought for the actions and also as you mentioned the lack of remorse and the fact that he pleaded not guilty could you could you remind uh that you you covered this terrible case sarah for so long could Mm -hmm. you remind some of the listeners about some of the background here about what what this guy said. I mean, he, he had this wild story that a, a, a dark-skinned lone shark was maybe re- responsible for the deaths of his kids. You remind me what what it was right. his alibi again. It was wild. Yeah, well, I mean, we we did know, and it came out in court that Andrew Barry was deep deep in debt and did have some gambling issues. Um, that was twisted around by the defense uh, in this case. 
they argued that he was so deep in debt, there was a loan shark, somebody named Paul that, that nobody could, could find any, any evidence of existing, um, a loan yeah. shark that was after Andrew Berry for, um, the money that he owed. And, and their argument was that this loan shark was the one that came to Andrew Berry's, uh, apartment in Oak Bay on Christmas Day and, and killed, uh, Chloe and Aubrey, his daughters, and also, uh, severely injured Andrew Berry. And we do know that Andrew Berry was found badly wounded in the bathtub of his home uh, right. on the the day of those murders. Of course, Crown alleged that that was uh, self-inflicted wounds, that he had tried to commit suicide, um, and defense argued that it was inflicted by by somebody else. Uh, and the judge mm. in her Senate saying, and she sat through the whole trial, of course, she basically said she didn't buy it. Uh, she, she thought that... Um, it wasn't credible, the argument that defense laid out. Um, and that was made clear even before today's sentencing. Um, so, and it, it was interesting in, in, and those notes from Brad McLeod as well, which I am referencing. He's in the courtroom in Victoria right now. Um, her reference to the fact that she believes that the fact that the girls were stabbed to death, and both of them, keep in mind, were stabbed to death dozens of times. Uh, oh. Stabbed dozens of times, I should say. They were in their own rooms, in their own beds uh, oh. at the time their bodies were discovered. And um, Madam Justice Groper saying in her sentencing statement that, in her mind, that showed... Some degree of forethought. So we know these are right. second degree murder convictions. Uh, but she's saying that showed that showed forethought. The fact that they were in their separate rooms, uh, that they were both killed individually at different times. Um, so that uh, likely is a factor in her in her sentencing here. So she did sentence him to the upper end uh, of the scale. So um, right. the maximum we know that he, he would have been eligible for parole is 25 years. So once again, Crown asked for 24 years. Uh, the judge delivering an eligibility of 22 years this morning to Andrew Berry. Sarah, good job on a difficult story. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That's Global News reporter Sarah McDonald. That breaking news once again, Andrew Barry sentenced to life in prison today. No eligibility for parole for 22 years for the second degree murder convictions of his two young daughters. The statement from Sarah Cotton, the mother of these two little girls, is really heartbreaking too. She says, quote, I ask for privacy for myself and my loved ones as we move into the holiday season. I hope we'll find a little peace in the coming year and hope we can he all heal as we move forward hey, let's give you an update now on one of the other big stories we've been covering for you this week and that is the cyber attack on life labs the big medical testing company in canada what a shocking story this is and broke on tuesday that 15 million customers of life labs uh, may have had their personal acts their their personal information was accessed by hackers including millions of patients here in British Columbia. The investigation is now continuing on this one. Life Labs actually paid the ransom. They paid a ransom to the hackers to get the information returned to them. Of course, there's no guarantees that these hackers didn't make copies of all that information before they returned the data uh, to British Columbia and to Life Labs. Let's check in now with Adrian Dick, Species Minister of Health. Minister, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. One of the things I want to bring to your attention is a question that I asked to Charles Brown, who is the president of Life Labs, when he was on the show on Tuesday. And one of the things I wanted to know, Minister, was what kind of steps had this company taken to protect the information of BC patients? And I asked him if the information was encrypted. Have a little listen to this exchange. 
Did you guys not have encrypted security systems here? I mean, what do you say to the patients here that trusted you with their personal information? We've been investing in cybersecurity for years, and we've built up our systems. What we're seeing is these attacks are getting more sophisticated. We've all got to work together and do more to stop these attacks. Minister, I just draw to your attention that he did not answer the question about whether this data was encrypted at Life Labs. I know he has told other reporters that he doesn't even know if the information was encrypted when it was entrusted to this company. What did the B.C. government know about the level of protection and encryption for this data for B.C. medical patients here? Well, can I take a step back, uh, Mike? What's happening right now, um, by the way, is... uh an independent investigation that will be uh, go to the heart of this issue, including uh, uh, one that goes to the systems questions and everything else. It's going to be conducted uh, by the Office of the uh, Information and Privacy Commissioner in B.C. and in Ontario, uh, which are the two main jurisdictions affected. So all of these questions, uh, now that we've got to the point where Life Labs has built up its systems, uh, what happened now can come under investigation. We're not just protecting data. So that's happening now, and I think that's important to know. We have an expectation, a contractual one and a legislative one on Life Lab uh, to ensure privacy. And uh, uh, the CEO is correct to say that the threats are getting larger. They're getting larger for everyone. I would expect, Mike, uh, you'd be naive not to think that they won't become more sophisticated over the next decade, not less. And so uh, uh, clearly more is needed. And so we're, we've been uh, clear, working every day with Life Labs to ensure that uh, yeah. the further protections are provided. And, uh, and so uh, we're continuing to do that. I think it's a significant Did- situation. And you know in B.C. we have people uh, who work very hard on this question. In the government of B.C. they work in the Ministry of Citizen Services to uh, to put in place security measures to prevent infiltrations. But they're challenged all the time, as you know. Minister, what what I'd like to know is what the B.C. government knew about the encryption of this information or lack thereof. You mentioned that the government had a contractual relationship with Life Labs. Did that contract include a requirement that this medical data for British Columbia medical patients should be encrypted to protect it from hackers? All all of what we know is that the, the rules force them to ensure that privacy protection security services are clearly set out. So that's in the... in the Including in the encryption process. of the data? Uh, Mike, I think what the reason I think Life Labs is reluctant, but this all of these issues I think have to be examined and are being examined forensically uh, by the Information and Privacy Commissioner. And so I think part of Life Labs' reluctance to answer some of those questions is because they don't want to publicize their defense mechanisms too much. That would be my understanding. But here's what, what, I, I'm, what I'm asking here, you, Minister. Here, Minister, what, what I'm saying. Well, Mike, uh, it, what uh, our expectation, though, is, and the government of Ontario and other governments that uh, have Life Labs providing services, is they have a responsibility to ensure security, and it's our expectation that they do that. Well, And that's, that's what guides us in these processes. Well, what about the government's responsibility to ensure that the data of BC medical patients is protected? Did the government have an agreement with Life Labs that this data would be encrypted? Uh, uh, Mike, what I'm saying to you is all of those questions, how this happened, what the circumstances are, are going to be the subject of a forensic investigation. There's no 
effort, and there will be no effort to uh, to hide anything. So uh, that that investigation is happening, and uh, I expect it to be released fully and publicly uh, when it comes out. Why, why was all the, all the questions are answered? So uh, you know, uh, these are questions. What Life Labs does are questions appropriate for Life Labs. Their obligation, their contractual obligation to us, is to ensure privacy and. Uh, and uh, I think it's fair to say people were let down uh, in that area in this matter, to say the least. And so uh, further actions have, are, have been required to be taken and are being taken now. Minister, does your government know exactly what data was stolen, whose data was stolen, and will British Columbians be personally notified of exactly what, their, what data was, of theirs was taken? So uh, Life Labs is a private contractor for us. They do about 34% of lab testing in BC. On November 7th, they had informed us uh, on October 28th that they had a problem. At that time, principally, it appeared in Ontario. On November 7th, they became aware that it involved British Columbia personal data as well, that it had been compromised. They informed right. us, and they informed the Information and Privacy Commissioner. So I just want to take you through it, right, because I think it's important. The facts are important here, uh, as you know. And um, from the moment they reported it, uh, all the efforts were, apply, were deployed to ascertain, obviously, the scope of it. Um, what Life Labs uh, asked us to do, asked the Information and Privacy Commissioners in both provinces for, they requested more time to effectively secure their data. Because what happens, as you've been discussing this week, with these kind of incidents is they attract immediate secondary cyber attacks. So while we agreed very reluctantly with that reasoning, which involved the delay by Life Labs informing the public, uh, Mike, um, they did put in place, uh, brought in cy extra cybersecurity firms, secured their data, uh, and, and uh, moved to ascertain the scope and the impact of the breach, which was significant. And that's how we became aware uh, of the, the figure you used and that I used a couple of days ago, 50 million Life Labs clients across Canada. And the majority, vast majority of those are in BC and Ontario. What we know is, from the scope of it, yeah. that lab results were affected in Ontario. Uh, I gather approximately 85,000. And uh, that it was in BC, the kind of personal information, names and addresses and personal health numbers that were affected. And all of that you, is extraordinarily serious, Mike. Can we take it extraordinarily seriously, as you know? Minister, we have one minute left. Have you okay. demanded of this company as the minister to, for them to disclose exactly how many British Columbians' information has been affected here, and will they be told? If, if my information has been stolen, am I going to be told that it was stolen? Well, uh, ab look, absolutely. We've uh, asked them to uh, be clear, and we've been involved in ascertaining exactly who was affected in British Columbia. What we know, essentially, is that, uh, that most... British Columbians, millions of British Columbians were affected, uh, and this is a serious, you know, a serious okay. matter for us. As you know, I'm not just Minister of Health; I'm a Life Labs customer in the sense that right. I get my blood tested there regularly, and all of us are affected by that. So I think it's a it's a step that we what it shows is we have to continue to take action because this is going to be a continuing okay. area of interest both for government and for private contractors who work for government. Thank you for coming on. Hey, right any time, Mike. Appreciate it. Adrian Dix is BC's Minister of Health. Hey, let's talk about a wild year in weather in 2019 in the era of climate change. It seems like 
the new normal is that the weather is not normal at all around the country. Canadians experiencing more and more extreme weather from intense and lengthy heat waves, suffocating smoke and haze from wildfires to extreme flooding. All parts of Canada had some a little taste of extreme weather uh, this year. Let's check in now with David Phillips. He's the senior climatologist at Environment Canada. They've just put out their top 10 weather stories for the year. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me aboard. And yes, you describe it well. It's uh, it was a, a weird, wild, and wacky year. I, you know, Mike, sometimes I thought that nature was going to leave us alone. You know, I mean, winter was it was cold, and and and, uh, and and we were dumped on at times, and summer baked us and and uh, soaked us. But it was really the transition seasons, though the spring and the fall, that are often forgotten. That seemed to have all of the weather. But in the end, it was an expensive year. It wasn't a killing year. It rarely is in Canada, but it was certainly disruptive, and every location was was left uh, was given some some serious issues. I think if there was one area that I said, well, maybe had a little quieter than other areas, it might have been British Columbia because yeah. the last two years we saw that really it was the forest fires that really dominated the flooding, and what we saw this year, Mike, in in, in your province was, hey, I mean, there were moments where I thought it was going to be another another uh, a hot to blazing kind of a year, and uh, but uh, we had very low snowfall totals, which uh, meant maybe there wasn't a flooding situation and a lot of lightning strikes. But boy, the rain seemed to come just to squelch those fires. They couldn't really get going. Oh, there were a few fires, but it was just a fraction of what we saw the last couple of years. So I think most British Columbia forest firefighters were in Alberta or in the Yukon or in California. They weren't at home because, hey, there wasn't a need for them. Yeah, I think we got lucky this year for yeah, sure. The the wildfires just didn't seem to be as bad this year as we've seen in some past years. There was also some, was it just me or did it seem like there was less precipitation there? Did we go through a drought period there? Well, we certainly did at the end of the year. I mean, my yeah. gosh, I couldn't believe the kind of situation we saw uh, there in uh, in during the the height of the of the wet season. Your monsoon season is usually October, November, December, and there was a period there where you didn't find one drop of rain over two weeks in late October and through uh, November. And uh, it worried me a little bit because you know you need to. This is the time you restore the water levels for for the forests, for the rivers, for the uh, fish and agriculture and uh, I guess in many ways people what they were cursing there in September October which turned out to be pretty wet well it was kind of balanced by the last couple of months which have been drier now we're seeing uh, atmospheric rivers coming into the province so some of that wet uh, rain will come and and you know you might be cursing now that rain but I think in the end it, it probably is a blessing given the fact that you need it because uh, things have been a little bit on the on the dry side. All right, Dave, let's take a look at your top 10 weather stories put mm-hmm. together by Environment Canada here this year. It's an interesting list. So number one here, an, another record-setting flood of the Ottawa River. What happened there? Well, you know... I think, Mike, you couldn't have manufactured uh, worse, worse flooding kind of weather. I mean, it was just cold for so long, uh, record amounts of snow in parts of the Ottawa River Basin, and uh, the ground was frozen, and then all of a sudden you couldn't melt it. Uh, it just absolutely stayed solid right through till April, and then the, then the spring rains came and nowhere to go, and so you ended up with a pretty nasty flooding. Uh, the worst, I mean, you look at 120 years, the water levels on the Ottawa and other 
river tributary rivers were never higher and uh, and the same people mike were flooded out that they were 2 years ago and so that sort of added to the to the misery the psychological downer that it was and military came out so no question about it in front was unprecedented in terms of the impacts the the, the magnitude the uh, the really the the effects of this particular flood Okay, number two on the Environment Canada list this year are the hurricane season that we saw in 2019. A lot of people will remember Hurricane Dorian this yes. year and the destruction in the Bahamas. We sort of got a bit of a ricochet or the tail end of that, right? And in we did. Canada. It had lots of energy, fuel left uh, after annihilating the Bahamas, the most powerful hurricane ever to make landfall in that country. Yeah. And it came up to uh, to Canada. It usually speeds up there and then just sort of hits and runs. Well, boy, it was it was a powerful storm. Uh, it uh, winds of 155 kilometers per hour, drenching rains, and uh, it had been a free by a, a previous week, uh, 10 days, uh, uh, tropical storm Aaron. So it, it really brought rains and weakened trees. And then when Dorian hit, it just was no, there was no just uh, holding back. And, and in terms of Nova Scotia power, they'd never seen outages like that before. It was a record, like, like British Columbia had last December uh, when they had that great windstorm and it was the biggest BC power outage ever. Well, uh, in, in the same situation for Nova Scotia this year. And you know, that's a, that's a province that gets nasty storms, and this was the, the most powerful one, and, and also more public infrastructure. So it was a big hit. Okay, number three on the list of extreme weather events in Canada this year was a a big snowfall dump on the prairies in the fall. Now that's like snow in September, and not unusual in Calgary, though, right? But it was the amount of snow um, that fell here? Mike, you got it right. I mean, it's not something, it's usually a shocker when it occurs, but it's, it's, it's very much part of their climate. And this was a week after the summer ended. It was a big one. It wasn't a record, but it left a lot of snow there. And because the harvest had been so late, a lot of the harvest hadn't been done. And so it took a real toll on the harvest, just made it worse than ever. In fact, we see now that parts of the, there's millions of square, uh, of uh, hectares of farmland that still haven't been harvested. We'll have to wait till 2020. And of course, Mike, there was a lot of power outages because the leaves were still on trees, and uh, and and that really sagged things down, and that was a big hit. And then that same kind of story, there was another sort of a big system uh, in Manitoba just a couple of days before Thanksgiving, another record, in fact, a record amount of snowfall, and uh, took out power for it was the greatest power losses for for Manitoba. You see that re- recurring theme in British Columbia, Manitoba, no. Uh, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, the greatest power outages for those particular provinces, and and so that was really a, a challenge for for growers, and uh, and again a lot of damage and power outages uh, that occurred in that particular storm. All right, we'll squeeze in one more here, and another okay. one that made your top five was a brutally cold February in a lot of parts of Canada. Again, British Columbia here, especially in the Lower Mainland, I guess we can count our blessings. In, in, uh, in well, 2019, but it was a pretty cold snap there in February and other parts of the country, right? It was. And, you know, I mean, compared to the prairies, I mean, it was balmy in, in uh, Victoria, Vancouver. But, you know, Mike, it was still cold. I mean, when you look back at February, you had all your snow fell in February. I mean, there was just too much Arctic air sitting there. And those Pineapple Express storms came and you just got the snow. I mean, five times the amount of snow. And temperatures for a marine location like Vancouver, I mean, it was temperatures were five degrees colder than they normally would be. It was really one of the coldest months... 
but but really in a good way it was sort of winter was all confined to that one month so hey it wasn't as cold as it was on the prairies but boy by your standards it was pretty it was pretty winter like all right dave thanks for the update and the and the uh, big stories and weather in the year appreciate it you're so welcome mike bye-bye now okay that's david phillips a senior climatologist at Environment Canada, we'll see what 2020 brings us. Let's return now to the Andrew Berry case and the absolutely horrific murders of those two little girls, four-year-old and six-year-old uh, daughters of Andrew Berry. He was convicted on two counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced this morning. Andrew Berry sentenced to life in prison on those two second-degree murder convictions. He will have no chance for parole until he has served 22 years in jail the tragic deaths of these two little girls now has put the issue of child custody agreements under the microscope according to the girl's mother sarah cotton andrew barry had been physically verbally and emotionally violent during their common law relationship in her statement after the sentencing this morning she said the legal system is an incredibly acrimonious one that favors equal parenting time over the safety and the well-being of the children. She also called for changes to be made to the legislation around divorce, separation, mediation, parenting time, and access to children. Our next guest is Angela Marie McDougall, Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Services. She says more training is needed to help judges understand the warning signs of family violence. Angela, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, good day. Thank you very much. Do you agree with Sarah Cotton here that the that the system here is is too acrimonious? And do we see some cases now where maybe parents, some parents, get access to children that they shouldn't have access to? I, I agree with uh, with uh, the mother entirely, unequivocally. You know what we've got here is uh, uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that. Uh, that uh, you know, when there's uh, abuse in a relationship, uh, mo- uh, and then there's parenting uh, custody issues, that uh, the mother and the children, uh, when there's uh, the mother and the children are, are at risk for violence, including lethal violence. And there was enough evidence in this uh, case to give us a sense of the potential lethality of not only the mother but also the children. And the problem that we have, and I know that you uh, talk about the you know talking about judges, the training for judges, and that was just one part of the picture. We've got, uh, uh, you know, Sarah Cotton's correct. The mother is correct when she uh, talks about this idea of equal parenting time when there's these histories of uh, domestic violence by a father to a mother and, and to children. And, you know, and these are things that we've been attempting to address and disrupt, actually, through our work at Battery Women Support Services for 40 years. Okay. Do you think there were warning signs that were missed in this particularly tragic case? There always is warning signs that are missed, sadly. And, you know, domestic homicide is one of the most predicted and most preventable uh, forms of lethal violence that we actually have. What we don't have, unfortunately, is a sense that the system takes the violence seriously. We uh, see routinely where uh, the, the idea of the, the children having, that the father having access, the abusive father having access to children uh, ahead of the evidence of violence. And this, you know, and Sarah Cotton is speaking to that as a, you know, here is a mother that is telling her own tragic story of the death of her daughters uh, in something that we all know. And, you know, there's enough research, there's enough evidence, and there's enough dead bodies to tell us exactly what the problem is. What we don't have is a culture and a system that's prepared to address it 
in a meaningful way yet. Okay. okay. Certainly, if there are any warning signs there, if any kids are at risk, obviously we need a system that's responsive to that. What kind of changes do you think are needed? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, and these changes have been have been suggested routinely. We have a new family law act in British Columbia that does address the domestic violence. However, the system continues to not take it seriously. We've got the apparatus. Uh, in place, what we don't have are the individuals within that apparatus to respond in the way that understands this legality. Okay, so what what do you need? You need more, you need more staff to en- enforce some of these uh, rulings? What What's required? So one of the things I know for sure in the province of British Columbia and right here in Metro Vancouver that would be really great is that we have a, a, an amazing network of services for women survivors of violence and their children. Transition houses, women's centers, victim service programs, community-based programs. This is a really good time for a community to invest in that community-based response. We know that when women and their children are connected to a community-based organization, uh, not unlike the organization that I work for, uh, they are safer. Uh, that's one thing for sure. And, uh, you know, and this is a good time to, to make donations to your local transition house, women's organization, for sure. The other, and, and the other thing that the services do is that they help advocate within the system. Women uh, who are dealing, women and their children that are dealing with uh, lethal violence like this, potential lethal violence, benefit from having an advocate, someone that stands with them, that can help, help hold the system accountable. Because, again, we have, we have some of the best laws and policies, quite frankly, in, uh, in British Columbia and, you know, and Canada as a whole in the world. However, it's not enforced. But an advocate can be a game changer for women and their children. And that's that's something that every woman that's dealing with violence uh, should have the benefit of. Just got a minute left here, Angela. I've I've talked to some dads in the past who felt that the system was maybe a little stacked against them and that maybe they were not getting as much access to their kids as they would like. I mean, in general, the concept of equal parenting, is that a sound one in your mind? I mean, obviously, the, the, the whole game changes if there's any evidence of threats of violence or abuse but when you have you know two stable parents i mean equal is equal parenting a good concept and this is a really important distinction that we're talking about right now we're not talking about uh you know when when marriages and relationships break up and there's no violence no abuse we're not talking about that at all we're not we're talking about a very specific situation of which there's always evidence and uh, what happens, unfortunately, is the system does not, uh, does not take that evidence into consideration. And that okay. is, uh, that's the biggest problem. And, okay. and, 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 and it's in light in terms of a, of a broader sense of, uh, but we are working to change that. And, you know, and I just raised my hand to Sarah uh, Cotton and, uh, and, you know, and honor her. And, and, of course, our hearts will continue to be with her and her, lot, sure. her daughters. Angela, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to us. Thank you. Angela Marie McDougall, the Battered Women's Support Services. She's the executive director there. Let's go back to the other story we're following for you today, and that's the Life Labs data hack. What a story. This broke on Tuesday when we find out that Life Labs, one of the biggest medical testing companies in the country, had been attacked by hackers who had stolen the personal private information of 15 million Canadians in Ontario and in British Columbia, millions of British Columbians apparently uh, potentially have had their personal information uh, compromised in this attack. The company found out about this data attack back in late October around November and around November 1st. We're just finding out about it now. 
The company says they paid the ransom to the hackers to get the information back. Of course, nothing stopping these hackers from making a copy of that information and continuing to misuse it even after uh, they'd gotten their ransom. New questions now for the B.C. government, which had a contract with Life Labs for medical testing. What did the NDP government know about this? What action did they take to protect the personal information of British Columbians? I talked to Health Minister Adrian Dix about that earlier today on the show. Let's get the other side of it now. Andrew Wilkinson, he's the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. He joins me now. Hi. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What are the key questions in your mind on this? Well, you know, personal information, health information is the property of the patient. That's you and me. It does not belong to the government. It does not belong to the lab. It does not belong to the doctor. So this information got stolen six weeks ago from the vast majority of our population, it seems, and they didn't have the courtesy to tell us. And for six weeks, they spent their uh, time covering their rear ends, and the Ministry of Health was apparently fretting about this. Why weren't people told so they could watch out for any kind of data hack at their own personal level and watch out for fraudulent activity? We are entitled to know because it's our information. Okay, well, the government and the company are saying the reason that this was kept hush-hush for like six weeks was because they were working to resolve the situation, and if they felt that if they had coughed it up early and admitted that this had happened, they'd be wide open for a, a potentially a secondary hack or a secondary cyber attack. Are you buying that? Not really. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, oh, your car got stolen, so we're just going to keep that quiet for six weeks in case they come back and steal your other car. I mean, put up the protections immediately. Don't they have that in place? I mean, Mike, we paid this company $243 million a year. And this is the kind of expertise they show when they're under pressure. I mean, you said it yesterday and today again, the boss of Life Labs doesn't even know if the data was encrypted. He didn't know the answer. That seems pretty basic to you and me. Yeah. So what we've got is a company that's asleep at the switch and a Ministry of Health that's covering its tracks, and you and I are the ones that are going to end up paying for it. Yeah, I mean, the company's fallen all over themselves to apologize to people, and they're offering, like, a one-year insurance package for people on a, on identity theft insurance. So they seem to have a, a good PR uh, campaign in place here to kind of protect their corporate image here. But you're right about some of the key questions. And by the way, Charles Brown, he is the CEO of Life Labs. I talked to him here on the show on Tuesday. And I asked him about that data encryption. Was this information encrypted? Have a listen to this. Did you guys not have encrypted security systems here? I mean, what do you say to the patients here that trusted you with their personal information? We've been investing in cybersecurity for years, and we've built up our systems. What we're seeing is these attacks are getting more sophisticated. We've all got to work together and do more to stop these attacks. Okay, he didn't answer the question, and he later told other reporters he doesn't even know if the data had been encrypted. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's bizarre that they don't know the answer to that, first of all. Then secondly, this lame issue of we'll offer you one year of insurance. I don't want insurance. My property was stolen. You have to cover my costs. I shouldn't have to apply for insurance. And we've heard already that people waiting anywhere from two to four hours on the phone to sign up for this supposed insurance. You know what happens with insurance? You'll make a claim nine months from now, and they'll say, oh, actually, that's outside the terms of the policy. I don't want insurance. I want a total indemnity from Life Labs because they dropped the ball with our information. Okay, I would like to know 
and I think most British Columbians would like to know if their own information has been compromised here and exactly what information was stolen in the data hack. One of the things that the CEO of the company told me was that medical information may have been compromised here, but they're not even super clear on that. Do you think that there's any onus on the BC government now here as a contractual partner with Life Labs to cough up that information and ensure British Columbians are, are personally notified if their, if their information has been stolen? Absolutely, Mike. I mean, the law on this has been clear since 1992 when the Supreme Court of Canada said very clearly that health information is held in trust by doctors and hospitals and others like Life Labs. So they broke the trust. They owe us an explanation and they are obliged to tell us if our information has gone missing. Instead, they covered it up for six weeks and all of us are left out in the breeze wondering if our information is out there somewhere. We are entitled to know if our security has been breached on a personal level. Imagine if this was a bank or an airline. They'd be going broke at this point. Instead, we've got an almost monopoly going on here under the protection of the Ministry of Health, and it's not their information. The Ministry of Health owes us the obligation to extract the answers from Life Labs, not us going and begging Life Labs directly. Okay, speaking to BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson about the Life Labs data breach, I spoke earlier on the show today with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, and one of the things I tried to get from him was the province has got a contract with Life Labs, and I wanted to know, did that contract stipulate that the private medical information of British Columbians had to be protected by some sort of data encryption? It was tough to get an answer out of him on that. Have a listen to this. All of what we know is that the, the rules force them to ensure that privacy protection security services are clearly set out. So that's in the... in the Including in the encryption process. of the data? Uh, Mike, I think what the reason I think Life Labs is reluctant, but this, all of these issues I think have to be examined and are being examined forensically uh, by the Information and Privacy Commissioner. And so I think part of Life Labs' reluctance to answer some of those questions is because they don't want to publicize their defense mechanisms too much. That would be my understanding. Well, I guess he's passing the buck to the company, but they've got a contract with the company, so shouldn't we be demanding to know what the what the data protection was? Andrew Absolutely. Wilkinson. I mean, in this situation, we've got 5 million British Climbers looking to the Ministry of Health to get some answers from this company. They pay them almost a million dollars a day, more than a million dollars every business day of the year, and we get in response, oh, do we don't know if it's encrypted. Of course they know whether it's encrypted. They just don't want to tell us. And this idea that somehow that would jeopardize them from further hacks is laughable. So let's get some straight answers here. The information belongs to us. We own it. They lost it. What are they doing about it? And why weren't we notified right away so that we could take protective measures in our own personal lives in the last six weeks? And forget this insurance thing. They owe us total indemnity for what happened to that information. Okay, this is a data breach that was absolutely massive. 15 million Canadians, undoubtedly millions of people here in British Columbia. And, and I guess anytime you go to a doctor and you get ordered blood work or any kind of testing like that, you're likely going to one of these Life Labs uh, uh, offices. And you're a, a medical doctor yourself in the past. That's right. Um, in your experience, like that type of personal information of blood work, medical testing that was held by this company, it's extreme, obviously extremely sensitive uh, information. What are your thoughts on you know, you know, the concept of that kind of information falling in the hands of criminal hackers? 
Well, we're all worried when it's all correlated also with our MSP number, with our name and address, age, all the rest of it. It's a nice comprehensive profile, and they can use it to intimidate people if they want to. So you're right. It's very sensitive information. We're entitled to have it protected. And if something goes wrong, it's total liability for the person who left the file on the bus or let the hackers in the door. Instead, we're hearing this runaround where they don't even know what they did at the time. And they've had six weeks to sort their story out. And Adrian Dix is a smart guy. He's nobody's fool. And if he's pretending he doesn't know the answers, it's because they don't want you to know the answers. Well, what answers do you want on this file? What happened in those six weeks? Why weren't we notified? That is all of us who had our blood and urine and every other result exposed. Why aren't we getting total indemnity coverage for this instead of this Mickey Mouse insurance idea? And what's Minister Dix going to do about it so this doesn't happen again? Because all of us are supposed to go line up at Life Labs again tomorrow. and We don't even know if we're safe today. They haven't told us for six weeks what they should have told us on day two. Okay, well, when the Liberals were in power for all those years, I mean, you guys did business with Life Labs too, though, right? I mean, did you guys have any kind of contractual protection in there to make sure that British Columbians' medical records were protected by data encryption? You know, Mike, I'm the first one to say I don't know the answer to that, but it should have been done if it wasn't done. If we're in somehow way responsible for how the contract got written, then we did it wrong. Right now, the answer is there's been a huge blunder, and there's been a huge hole driven through the wall of our personal information and they didn't even have the courtesy to tell us so that we could take protective measures and now they say if something goes wrong they'll think about giving us some insurance if we apply for it and i call bs on all that stuff tell us the truth tell us the truth you know on day two not on day 42 we got an investigation underway the province has an independent freedom of information and protection of privacy commissioner michael mcavoy is a, a guy i respect a lot and i think he's doing Capable guy. a yep. good job for sure um what do you want to see come out of that investigation and, and should that investigation be made fully public oh absolutely and i expect the privacy commissioner will do exactly that they've got a very capable team of people i've worked with them and i know them and so they will give us some clarification on this in months and they will be finding fault and talking about uh, protective measures in the future. But you and I are saying the Ministry of Health should be telling us where we stand today and not just saying they're going to cover their butts with the Life Labs folks and we shouldn't worry about it. Well, lots of people are worried about it, and that's why a pretty significant lawsuit was filed in the courts yesterday because that seems to be the only way to get the truth on this and the only way to get any compensation if it goes sideways. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, that is Andrew Wilkinson. He's the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the official opposition. British Columbia has some of the toughest drunk driving laws in Canada. A lot of people know that. A lot of people support it, too. But here's a real doozy for this one. Try to wrap your head around this one. A B.C. woman was recently slapped with a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition for being intoxicated in a moving vehicle. Now, here's the kicker, though. She was not the driver. She was a passenger. The driver was sober. That's right. She got collared for being a drunk passenger in the vehicle. How can this possibly happen? Let's check in with Sarah Lehman now, criminal defense lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. And the woman who was uh, got the 90-day IRP here is her client. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, I can barely believe this, that this is possible. But tell me the story. How did this happen? 
Well, you and me both. I have to say, when my client contacted me and told me this story over the phone, I could barely believe it. And it wasn't until I got the police report and confirmed her story from that end that, you know, I was even more appalled. But essentially what happened was that my client and her husband went out to a Christmas party, had a few drinks, and then their 22-year-old son came to pick them up from the party and give them a safe, sober ride home. When they hit a roadblock on the way home, the officer saw that the driver was completely dead sober, but then pulled my client out of the vehicle. She was sitting in the passenger passenger seat at the time and made her submit to a breath test. A br- wait a second. A breath- She's a passenger in the vehicle, and she has to do a breath test. She wasn't driving, though. I know. That's exactly it. Now, the officer has said that one of the reasons he decided to do this was because her 22-year-old son has a novice license, and the officer was of the opinion that she wasn't able to properly supervise him. Now, the kicker here is that a novice driver in this province doesn't need a supervisor. That's only reserved for learner licenses. So a novice driver has no requirement that anybody be supervising them while they're driving. Okay, and was he in fact a novice driver? He wasn't. He didn't have an L. He was a novice driver. That's correct. Is that right? Okay, so you don't need, now. Is that if, what if he was a learner? Would that have been illegal? That if if the 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 person supervising him as a learner had been well, intoxicated, would that be illegal? Well, I mean, a learner license is supposed to have a person supervising them over 25. I mean, I think this all comes down to a matter of police discretion. I think that we have to make sure that we're deterring impaired drivers. But if a person is taking steps to make sure they have a safe and sober ride home, even in a case with a learner driver, I would make the argument that the officer would not or should not hand out a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition. Okay, but if it's a novice driver like we have in this case, it's pretty it's pretty much a slam dunk then. I mean, they don't have to have a a supervising a supervisor. They they definitely do not, but I mean okay. the difficulty here is that my client is without her license for 90 days. Right now she's prohibited from driving and her family is well without their vehicle. This is a family vehicle. Everybody in the household relies on it to get to and from work, and so their entire household is now disrupted. Okay, this is a wild case. I mean, how did this uh how did it come about that she was asked to produce a breath sample in the first place? I mean, was she being um, was she being a belligerent with the officer or something? Like, I, I'm just trying to imagine why an officer would ask for a breathalyzer from a passenger. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. There's absolutely zero indication that this was anything but a completely routine check stop. It was the officer who started questioning my client about whether she drank or not. And of course, she was forthcoming and said, yeah, I did. This is my designated driver. This is my safe ride home. Yeah. Right. Okay. What about the husband? He was he was drinking, too. Was he in the backseat? He was in the back seat. The officer felt that um, it would be inappropriate to give him a ticket, ironically, because he felt that he was too far away from the gears and there was no possibility that he could reach them. Whereas he what? has said that he was of the opinion that because my client was sitting in the passenger seat and the vehicle was, in his opinion, small, she could have reached over and grabbed that steering wheel. Wait a minute. Okay, so... <laughs> Wait a sec. So she's sitting in the passenger seat and the cop is saying, I'm going to ring you up for drunk driving because what you're so drunk, you may have lunged over and grabbed the wheel from your own kid and tried to drive the car, you know, steer the car over. I don't get it. 
Yeah, essentially, that is the officer's evidence that I've been provided. So, I mean, this is disturbing. It's, it's so disturbing on multiple levels for us to see that people are taking uh, very, very reasonable precautions to make sure that they're not posing a threat to public safety. And then these types of things are being handed down. Yeah. yeah. OK. Have you ever heard of a case like this before, Sarah, like someone, a passenger in a vehicle gets rung up? Not at all in these circumstances. And I have been doing this for the better part of a decade now. I've actually been representing people with immediate roadside prohibitions since the day the law came out. So I have never seen a circumstance like this before. And again, I find it deeply disturbing. Okay, how does that 90-day prohibition work? Does that mean she can't drive for 90 days? That's right. We are currently in the process of having it reviewed. So hopefully my client will have her license returned in the new year. But still, this is going to be a number of weeks at least where she's unable to drive and the family's without a vehicle. Plus, she's on the hook for paying for legal services, which she otherwise definitely shouldn't have. Okay, what about the vehicle? Was the vehicle seized? It was. It's currently impounded for 30 days. Wow. Okay. So they took the car away right there. What did they have to do? Call a cab? Yes, that's right. And so everybody had to take a cab home at the end of the day. Um, Again, you know, this is just a complete overreaction, in my opinion, by police. And it really just shows a a very severe lack of discretion. Where did this happen? Vancouver or where? No, it was out in the Kootenays. So, uh, yeah, so it's interior. Um, but, I mean, this is something that we certainly don't want to see being adopted anywhere else. Okay, so this is like, what does this mean, though? Is this set a strange precedent that means if you're a, pa- if you're a drunk passenger in a vehicle, you could, be, you could be rung up on a drunk impaired charge? Well, that's the troubling aspect of this, is that if this is how officers are going to be interpreting our drunk driving laws in this province, we have some real problems. Um, Again, I find it disturbing that we have somebody who acted responsibly, took all of the right steps, and still ends up with what is really, at the end of the day, a DUI charge. So this is just very, very troubling for me. Again, it's a trend that I certainly don't want to see repeated again. That's wild. So what are your next steps here? Are you just pleading not guilty to it, or how do you fight it? Well, my client has already filed for the review, and we have a hearing date set early in the new year. It will go before an administrative tribunal, and an adjudicator will decide whether or not this prohibition was validly issued. Okay, well, we're going to have to check in with you later on this one. I want to find out how this uh, this story ends up. Sarah, thanks for sharing it. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. That's uh, Sarah Lehman, criminal defense lawyer. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's return to our big story of the day, and that's the sentencing of Andrew Barry today in B.C. Supreme Court in Victoria. Andrew Barry is the Victoria area man convicted on two counts of second-degree murder in the brutal Christmas Day stabbing deaths of his own daughters. Four-year-old Aubrey, six-year-old Chloe, found dead two years ago. He pleaded not guilty in the case claiming an intruder had killed the little girls. That explanation did not stand up in court. The Crown argued that he effectively killed the little girls to take revenge against his wife after their relationship had fallen apart. Andrew Barry was sentenced today to life in prison on those second-degree murder convictions with no chance of parole for 22 years. Such a tragic case, heartbreaking. A lot of questions being asked in the aftermath of it, too, including 
Were the deaths of these little girls actually preventable? Let's check in now with Dr. Lori Chamber, Chair of Women's Studies at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario, who's author, followed this case and has authored a, a study on it. And I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. The uh, This is such a tragic case. It, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And I know that it's really touched you, too, and your study of it. Could I get your reaction, first of all, to the sentencing? Does that, does that sentence make sense to you? Life in prison, it, no chance of parole for 22 years? If anything, it's not enough. Um, yeah. if this is a man who's shown absolutely no remorse for the most heinous crime possible. And um, I wouldn't welcome him back into the community any time. Yeah, it was close to the maximum, though, wasn't it? I mean, I guess the judge could yes. have gone to, what, 25 years? and Could have gone to 25. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on the case? I mean, when when people say, like, wow, this could these little girls have been saved? Could these deaths have been prevented? What are your thoughts on that? I think they could have, but our system's a long way away from making that happen because we don't really understand the kind of threat that men like Andrew Berry pose to their children. Uh, we don't talk about coercive control, and we need to talk about it. That's what Sarah Cotton was subjected to. That's what she was walking away from and trying to leave with her children. And she raised lots of issues with children's services and in the court with her with her lawyer and before the judge around Andrew's behavior. And people didn't understand the signs and symptoms that suggested that her child, she and her children were potentially at risk. Um, we don't tend to understand if men aren't using daily, if, if men are violent on a regular basis, we see that and we see it as a risk. But coercive control, which is a, a constellation of behaviors that limit women's options and keep them trapped without necessarily using a lot of violence, isn't widely recognized in any of these, across any of these uh, sectors or institutions. And it's actually more predictive of potential fatality than violence itself. And we don't talk about it. We don't recognize it. Until we do, there will continue to be other children um, like Sarah Cotton's children who get lost in the shuffle. What were some of the warning signs that were missed here, do you believe, in this case? All kinds of, they're subtle, right? You have to see it as a whole picture. Um, That he is absolutely resistant to the fact that she has left. She, he's trying every form of harassment through the courts to um, to keep Sarah connected to him in whatever way he can. So it's a negative connection through the court, harassing her in every way he possibly can. It's you know paper harassment through the courts. Um, he is rude with her. He is controlling of everything that she can do. He violates all of the agreements about how the children are supposed to be um, taken care of. He doesn't bring them home on the times he's supposed to bring them home. He is taking them across the border without permission, which is technically kidnapping when he's been told not to do that. He behaved very badly to the kids, neglecting them when they were in his care. He was accused at one point of sexual interference with the children, and it wasn't very thoroughly investigated. Um, There were a lot of a lot of signs and symptoms and right. the biggest one is when a mother mothers generally know when they are at risk and when their children are at risk 
And Sarah Cotton has said repeatedly that she was afraid for herself and afraid for her children the entire time. And we have to actually honor women's fear. Women underestimate risk. We know that um, statistically, when women are in bad relationships, they underestimate the physical risk themselves and to their children. So if a woman is saying, I'm afraid, we need to listen. This is a man, Andrew Barry, whose life went on a kind of a downward spiral. He was 45 years old, quit his job at BC Ferries, and the court heard that he had been, in the days leading up to the murders, basically been living in squalor. He had been facing eviction. His BC Hydro had been cut off a, a week before the murders. And as, as you said, uh, the mom here, Sarah Cotton, was clearly indicating that she, th- she thought he was a, f- a threat. He still had access to the kids, though, despite all these signs? Yes, he did. And often yeah. these men do. It's the one way they can maintain connection with their wives, right? Yeah. Um, if you have to share custody, you have to see him on a regular basis, whether you want to or not. And um, so, unfortunately, and very sadly, it's a tactic that's widely used by abusive men to control the women they still want in their lives. Um, and the more someone is a coercive controller, the more they're unlikely to be willing to let go because the object of the control is obviously to keep the woman with you. So um, it's not surprising that he was seeking custody, although all signs indicate that while he sought to have time with the children, he wasn't very good with them when he did have it. Um, you know, you want the control, but you he didn't really know how to do the work of childcare. Right. Speaking to Dr. Laurie Chambers from Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario, what do you think the what changes are needed in the system? Do you think to prevent a tragedy like this happening again? Like if we if there's another situation where there are warning signs, there are dangers, there are red flags. Do you need more intervention by the courts, or is it by the Child Protection Ministry of Provincial Governments? What needs to happen? Do you think? All of the above. And we need a much better public understanding of the risks surrounding coercive control, a lot of education about what coercive control looks like. Sadly, a lot of women don't even name it themselves because if they're not being hit on a regular basis, it's not viewed as abusive. But it is abusive and it's very dangerous. So if someone is highly jealous, highly controlling, uh, tells you what to do, what to wear, criticizes you about everything you do, makes you account for all of the time you spend anywhere, uh, controls the money, controls everything about how you are to present yourself, limits your access to friends and family, um, and undermines your self-confidence in any way possible. Uh, these are all warning signs. And some of them actually get romanticized. So some of the things that could be suggestive of someone who's coercive, a woman has cut off contact and she says, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hear from you. And he keeps sending her flowers at work. Mm-hmm. She gets flowers okay. 10 weeks in a row or 10 days in a row after she said, don't contact me. I don't want anything to do with right, you. Right. And people would see this as being, oh, he's just, he's so in love with her. It gets romanticized. In fact, if she's given him a clear, don't contact me, that's harassment. It's just wrapped up in a pretty bow. And so we don't recognize these kinds of behaviors for right. what they are. Um, Such so a- I would say public, public education is the number one thing, but then we also have to educate the services that are supposed to assist someone like Sarah Cotton and her children. So child, child services missed it, right? Such uh, a tra- such it. 
such a tragic case. Dr. Chambers, thanks for coming on with your expertise and your thoughts on it. Thank you for having me. And I I agree, it's a very tragic case. And I really hope that we take the opportunity to learn from it and try to move towards a world where these will be less common. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Lori Chambers. She's from Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario.